Romantics. I'm Morgan. And I'm Isabel. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. If you'd like to support us even more, please tell your friends or your mom. And subscribe, rate, and review on your favorite listening app. We also have a Patreon if you'd like to give us some financial support. If not, we get it. No worries. All of our content is free for all of our listeners. Thank you again for your support of Womance. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Morgan. And I'm Isabeau. And this is Womance. A podcast about romance novels. About gay Paris. About struggling artists. About forgery. About private detectives. About the dangerous world of insurance. About instantaneous connection. About the necessity of making baseless assumptions in order to solve crimes. About champagne. But most of all, it's about that first thing. Romance novels. And ourselves. This week, we are discussing Reckless by Susan Sackett. What a name. What a name. Isabeau, do you want to read the back of the book? I would actually prefer you to do it because my book is far away. Okay, that's fine. I understand. Thank you. Headline, Artful Minx. The daughter of one of the most talented and reluctant art forgers in Paris, Delia Hampton has inherited more than a little of her father's ability, but she'd never really used it until now. Her skill with a palette would help her catch the unscrupulous art dealer who'd been blackmailing her poor papa into a life of crime. She could only get a private investigator, Chase Sutton, to help her instead of guard her. She was sure the plan would work, but it was impossible to tell the handsome scoundrel to keep his protective hands off her when all she wanted was to taste his fevered kisses, savor his demanding caresses, and glory in a passion brighter than all of Paris's glittering lights tempting scoundrel. Chase was determined to get to the bottom of the art forgery scandal that was sweeping the continent, and his search had finally led him to the counterfeiter's door. But when he saw the innocence and desire burning in Delia Hampton's golden eyes, he lost sight of everything else. He let her think she'd have her way, but he'd be at her side every moment, keeping her safe and sound where she belonged, in his arms, where he could carry her to the heights of ecstasy and a masterpiece of reckless seduction she'd never forget. So he's not really a private investigator, first of all. He's an insurance man. Yeah, I guess he does private investigating for Lloyd's. But yeah, he works for the insurance company. Also, it doesn't seem that he's been following this forgery case all over the continent. So I understood that he was a company man for Lloyd's of London. Mm Mm-hmm, he is. Sort of like a private investigator, but more so he's just been sent to Paris to protect these two Dutch still lifes that were purchased in France and are going to be transferred to jolly old London. But he has discovered not really a forger himself, but like a broker wants to steal these paintings, replace them with forgeries. And he's tracked this guy back to this house in Paris to the actual forger's house. And that's where he meets our heroine as she returns from a day of painting silhouettes on the Seine because her father is the forger. A famous forger of old. He hasn't done it in a long time. So I found out some interesting information, Isbo. First, I want to ask you, do you recognize the name Susan Sackett? I don't, know. She is actually a pretty big deal in Star Trek as a writer. Oh, really? Yeah. That's so good for her. <laughs> 
She's been doing it for a long time, and she also writes books about Star Trek, which is pretty fitting because this is definitely an action-adventure romance, as to be expected from the Zebra Lovegram line. So the first Zebra romance I believe we read was during the Aha Shake Heartbreak series, and it was the novel from the 70s written by a man. A secret man. Yeah. I can't even remember the title. Maybe it wasn't reading the romance. Maybe it was somewhere else. But Zebra was actually known for publishing action adventure romances that featured the heroine in a position of authority and assertion, which is pretty true for this, I think. I think so too. They have these fabulous covers with these little foil holograms in the upper right corner that you're probably familiar with. And they have very seamy covers, which I think implies that these were mostly mail order, if I'm not mistaken. My copy came from a thrift store, and it's a UK edition. It has £3.99 printed on the back. Ooh. And says printed in the USA. That's cool. Where did you get your copy from? This is from one of my alley books. My cast-offs that I rescued from a stranger on the internet. Which, you know, also feels appropriate for this book. Just had a good feeling about a stranger. We have the interesting situation of realizing, like, I bought this at a thrift store because I loved the cover. And you ended up with it as an alley book. I did. And so we were like, oh, it's Destiny. We have to talk about it. Yeah, that's how we came to it. And Destiny, it truly was, because this book is almost impossible to find on the internet. Which seems crazy that you and I would both happen upon it in the wilds of Chicago in such diverse places, which also I think is part of the mysterious appeal of romance books. Like you can find them anywhere and everywhere because they would just mass produce these books for like a very brief moment in time, like a little piece of ephemera. And then they disappear because they're literally pulped by the publishing businesses (laughs) and other romances are then printed on those pulped pages. Yeah. What I think is interesting is I don't think someone like brought this book over from the UK on a vacation, right? Because it ended up at a thrift store. I think that's unlikely. And so that makes me think someone like really loved this book to bring it with them on a transatlantic move. Which is so interesting because it's not that it's a bad book. There are some special things about it. I'm just a little surprised that this made the trip over. Yeah, this isn't the one that I would bring, but this had genuine turns for me. Yes, I had genuine moments of shock. And I think what's interesting for me about this novel is that I think it works really well as an action adventure, but I'm not completely convinced by the romance. I think that's super fair. I got real uh, romancing the stone and mummy vibes. I also like that there's a crime here that isn't immediately about a dead girl. Right. Loved that. I think there was actually quite a bit to latch onto. You know what this feels like to me? It feels like a Loretta Chase, like a early Loretta Chase. That's really interesting and makes a lot of sense. Although I've never read an early Loretta Chase. I've only read a perfect Loretta Chase. But (laughs) yeah, so this brings to the table a lot of classic romance tropes that you would recognize if you were like a big Woody Wiss fan. Mm Mm-hmm. Or a big Joanna Lindsay fan, mm-hmm. which I don't know. I would say we were connoisseurs. I don't know <laughs> if I'd say we were fans exactly of those. I think connoisseurs or like sommeliers of <laughs> Joanna Lindsay and Kathleen Woodowis. Yeah. I think that's exactly right. We've got the young, naive virgin who's plucky and 
the course of the romance is really her being brought into sexual maturity and therefore emotional maturity by this all-knowing or more-knowing hero who isn't really questioned, like, his goodness and his rightness in spite of, like, acts of violence and, like, demonstrated, like, untrustworthiness. We're still meant to be like, wow, what a great guy, you know? Yeah, the shorthand of his goodness, I think, really rests on the fact that he's British and blonde. And I couldn't understand how that was the shorthand for his goodness because I think that, like, those aren't, like, I (laughs) have been socialized to see, like, like the blonde quarterback is like a real potential villain. And he is. He's constantly restraining our heroine Delia by the wrist. And like it hurts her. And the text goes to the trouble to tell us that it hurts her. And then he like, you know, he's like, oh, I'm sorry. I just feel so strongly. And I'm like, don't hold her so hard, you fucking asshole. Well, it's kind of brought up, I think, as an intentional contrast to her father. Right. Who, this book doesn't have a lot of characters, which is probably one of the reasons it works so well as a speedy read and also as a action adventure. But her dad is a art forger who has descended into alcoholism, and she has become the breadwinner of their household and manager of their household. So I think Chase, which, by the way, I remember in the 90s when everybody got super into that, name. I feel like this is maybe the third chase we've read about is kind of seen as like this regulating force, right? Like the trellis onto which our heroine can grow, right? Like she's just a wild patch of vines until he shows up and strong arms her. Right, because she's been denied the protective, important masculinity because her father has become this alcoholic with a heart condition. And I think like thinking about Chase as the fix masculinity that like comes in and as you say helps her grow and like come into her full fecund whatever whatever is a good way to think about Chase and his masculinity as it's portrayed in this text. Yeah absolutely. I think talking about the difference between the action adventure scenes and the sex scenes is a good way to demonstrate how this book kind of comes up short as a romance novel, but works really well as an action adventure. Okay. Do you want to speak a little bit to the sex scene placement? (laughs) (laughs) Sure. So we have our first chapter, Reader Beware. The first chapter is quite long and a little bit laggy. All the characters are introduced. I liked the first chapter. If you like Paris. If you like Paris, it's a good chapter. Like, And it, it does do a, quite a bit of character building. Like, I wouldn't say that it's extra. I just felt like there were moments where I'm just like, man, this is a long ass chapter. I think it could have been two. Anyway, we meet all of our main characters. And then in chapter two, it's revealed that our villain is blackmailing the heart condition alcoholic dad who has already had at this point, a visible episode in the text. And our heroine knows that dad's in trouble and that this forger could really like send him to prison or whatever. Not the forger, the art dealer slash blackmailer, Thomas Pickering. And so she takes this walkabout on this beautiful Paris sunny day and she's being followed by Lloyd's man, Chase, And he has this like weird obsessive attraction to her as is common in romance, like this instant like, oh, she's so pretty and she's not like other girls. 
So Chase is obsessively following her. And at first he's following her because it's his job and she's the only lead that he has to our villain Pickering. And all the while he's like following her on her beautiful Paris walkabout. And he's like, I need to talk to her. Like, she's going to be my lead. This is what we're going to do. And then he's like, but she's so pretty and I don't want to use her. And so I have to be like upfront about it. And so he decides to come out of the shadows and invites her for this glorious and spoiling afternoon. I do want to point out her dad immediately clocks him for a narc. Oh, totally. When he helps her carry the groceries in, he tells him to get out. He's a narc. And then her father tells his daughter because he doesn't want her to know that there's danger afoot that uh, she should stay away from him. No, that he just forgot an appointment and left. Mm -hmm. And so he's rude. So why would you pursue him further? Right. But he says, like, don't meet up with him again. He's like a roué and a cad. But she meets up with him and it feels very serendipitous to her. And like, here's the here's the first turn for me. In our interiority with the heroine, she's sitting at this cafe drinking her cafe au lait and she's decided that she has to stop Thomas Pickering by any means necessary. And she's decided that the means necessary is to pay him off with her body. But she's a naive virgin. And so all of a sudden, here comes the handsome Brit from yesterday who helped her with her groceries and he's offering to take her on this like splendid afternoon and she's like you know what I'm just gonna lose my virginity to this handsome man it's gonna be my choice and then I'm gonna pay whatever blackmailing debt my dad owes to this asshole well she was going to try to seduce Pickering right so she's like I might as well lose my virginity to someone who I'm attracted to right before I go and have sex with Pickering who I'm not attracted to and I'm you know which by the way like of course her father didn't put the idea in her head that she should should do <laughs> yeah, that, that was 100% our heroine Delia. So she's got this motive. He's trying to use her to get at Thomas Pickering. They have this insane afternoon together. And then they're like sharing this very flirtatious innuendo. And she sort of like takes him up on the invitation in his flirtation. And then he sort of is like testing her out and asks the waiter if there are rooms at this place where they're eating. And then the guy's like, may we, but of course. And then they get a room and they have sex in chapter two. I couldn't believe it. I was shocked. Yeah, it's something crazy. Like page 27, he sees blood on the bed. And just to clarify, it's so confusing. Thomas Pickering is the former U.S. ambassador and not a character in this novel. Matthew Pickering. Matthew Pickering is our bad guy. And what a bad guy he is. And what a bad guy he is. Yeah. Hang on. I want to stay in this sex scene for a second because I think it is insane for a couple of reasons. One, most penetrative sex scenes come later as part of a relationship building moment, like a moment of catharsis. This is not that. And what was also crazy to me in the reading of it was that we know that she's a virgin, but she decides not to disclose that to Chase, which chill. And like the sex scene itself is told in what I would call like a Woody Wissian tone where it's like lots of feelings and lots of overcome. Like, you know, I think we get him like kissing her breasts and then like, you know, the thing devolves into euphemism. And <laughs> 
they have sex and then she, you know, they're like all together or whatever. And she gets up to the window and she takes the coverlet with her. And then he sees that she's not a virgin. And then he goes to her and says, you know, why didn't you tell me? And she's like, was it such a hardship for you? And there's so much in that that I think does the good work of subverting a bad romance trope. And I was both surprised and I will say really caught off guard by how much I loved that and like how take charge she was. The fact that she's making this decision because she's going to go pay off this bad guy with her body, a decision she's made totally in absentia of anything. (laughs) And then they have this like insane, beautiful afternoon together. And then she's like, thanks, bud. And like, you know, goes home. And then everything sort of unravels from there. And I think the context is so important. Chase is very conscientious of the fact that he is not being the best possible person in this situation. Mm -hmm. I think he rationalizes that she's like an artist and French and therefore slutty already. He does rationalize that. And I think that's so key. Like we tend to excuse a lot of these historical novels by being like, it was a different time. And it's like, it wasn't that different. Like clearly the the era was conscientious of like what consent was and what consent wasn't and what was problematic because otherwise we wouldn't get all this internality of the hero like wrestling with his own conscientiousness. Granted, this was the 90s, but this book and Zebra itself, you know, I think we can find just from context clues and without any further reading that we have done that Zebra was a very steamy publishing house. I mean, you just look at this cover and it's clear that they were, you know, putting stuff on the shelves and selling things because people wanted something super titillating, right? But yeah, that second chapter sex scene is still shocking. And it doesn't really have contextual stakes. Like there's not a good reason for her to do it because there's not a good reason for her to think that she can just seduce Pickering, right? There's no reason for her to think that, that like she's making this decision in total absence of any evidence or even talking to her dad further. But like, as you say, like this is a justification of a 1993 novel giving sexual agency to this main character very early on in the text. Yeah. And I think the whole purpose is to like start the sex sooner than expected. Yeah, absolutely. Like this is definitely like a gimmick. (laughs) Yeah. Like this author does understand stakes. Mm -hmm. So with that in mind, I want to contrast this and maybe find our like footing and how the sex scenes are set up. Because I would also say like the later sex scenes are equally like rushed. Abrupt. Even though they've already had sex. Yeah, they're very abrupt because the sex isn't doing the work that sex scenes in romance novels often do, which is like character relevatory scenes and then scenes of titillating pleasure. Like this book is titillating on multiple variances and like the sex is definitely sort of a lesser harmony yeah in the titillation of this text so i want to fast forward to from this first sex scene to the final action scene where our hero and heroine have set a trap for pickering and it leads to like multiple shootings a double cross (laughs) secret knives then the like 
Earl or whatever shows up and also gets involved. It's wild. It's so intense. And I read every word and I devoured it because this author is very good at structuring, I think, an action scene like that. Yeah. But at one point I'm reading it and I'm like, this is all over two still life paintings, right? Mm -hmm. And then I remembered, no, it's not because the author has done so much to justify this violence and this intensity around this exchange, beginning with the death of our heroine's father, which is told across four chapters. Two are her and Chase. So she has found out who Chase really is almost immediately after that first sex scene from her father. And he is trying to win her back because he sees her as a way to pickering, but also because he likes her. And he likes himself as like a good guy, right? And he wants to yes. apologize and he wants to make amends and he wants to try and find a way forward. And so there are two chapters, there's a back and forth and then Pickering going to her father's house that ends with her father having a heart attack and Pickering crushing his pills with his shoe so that he can't take the pills and recover from the heart attack after he refuses to assist Pickering. And our heroine is able to discern this by finding crushed powder and amber glass in the living room where her father died after the fact. So making a lot of logic jumps there, but that's okay because, you know, I'm on board for all of the action and intrigue in this novel. And it was incredibly intriguing. And that scene where Pickering is standing over her father is so fraught. And like we spend so much time in Cotter Hampton, her father's internality, where he's so worried about his daughter and he's just the tightening squeeze of the heart attack, even as he feels his arteries you know snag up and like the pain reaching into his cranium like we spent so much time there and then we zoom out and we watch Pickering watch him struggle and then he crushes the thing underneath his boot after it's in his hand and he's almost got the vial open Pickering rips it out of his hand and then crushes it in front of him and then waits and watches him die and then leaves the house like whoa And you have to remember, in the middle of all of that action, there's a chapter where our heroine Delia, I don't even think we've said her name yet, but our heroine's name is Delia, like where you used to get fake band tees from a catalog. She is forcing Chase to drink coffee with her out in the rain because she refuses to go indoors with him. They're sitting outside in the rain at a cafe drinking coffee and he's apologizing to her. So we have this, you know, roaring fire death scene, right? Because he has the fireplace going in this like neglected house with very little furniture, like a really intense scene. And then it's interstitial with just this quiet scene of like apology and dialogue. But that feels so heightened and rushed because you're like, oh my God, get through your your coffee so you can go home and save your father's life. Yeah. Which once again, like Chase, I think feels partially responsible for what happened to her father because he kept Delia, but he also feels responsible for like her survival. And so like there's nothing in the action scenes as over the top and intense and like the number of pistols and knives that get pulled. It all feels justified because it all feels like even for our villain, it has become a point of pride. And there's even that moment where 
he's come in to try and find the paintings that he's going to swap out for the forgeries. And Chase is like lying in wait because he has to see him actually commit the crime. And Pickering is just like lovingly looking at these paintings, right? And Pickering returning again and again to kind of torture Delia when she's making the forgeries, right? At the gallery, pretending to be just an art student doing copies. Like all of this tension is built so carefully and correctly. I understand everyone's motivations. I feel like they're all justified. Or even like bad choices, like Delia going to her own funeral and telling her friend that she's not really dead. Oh my God. Like you totally understand that motivation because what if you were really cruel to someone and how they think you're dead and you actually do have the tools to make it right? Like, wouldn't you try? Like nothing in the action, nothing in the art heistiness of it felt gimmicky or felt forced to me. I think you're right. I think every action, like I said earlier, this feels very much like romancing the stone and like the stakes keep getting higher. Like we're climbing a Jenga tower as more and more bodies pile up as the stakes get higher and higher. There's this insane scene at the Comte de Grasse's fete. Oh my gosh. And they have to gate crash. And it's like an amazing scene. It very much reminded me of Working Girl with Harrison Ford and Melanie Griffith, where like they both know that they're gate crashing, but she's much better at gate crashing than he is. Our, you know, man about town guy, Chase. And she basically gets them in and it's her charm. And she like really turns it on and she's able to get the thing that she's doing. But at the same time, we also understand in that moment that they're really working at cross purposes because she wants revenge, right? She knows that Pickering killed her dad and she wants to make sure that he goes to prison. She wants to make sure that he knows that she sent him there. She's like very invested. And all the while, Chase is like, whoa, whoa, you got back up. Like you're new at this. You don't know what you're doing. And she's constantly showing him what an asset she is in this, which is both really fun to watch, but also like kind of terrifying at times because she does make really stupid decisions. Understandable ones, but just like, awful ones. The ball is one of my favorite scenes. So good. And is a great example of every piece on the board is in play. So she charms this other couple who's coming in and wins them over this older couple so that whenever Chase gets to the butler and says, oh, I forgot my invitation, this couple like advocates for them is like, don't be ridiculous. It's fine. He didn't remember his invitation and takes them in. And then the husband starts dancing with Delia immediately. And his wife comes up to Chase and propositions him, basically, as revenge against her husband, who is, you know, a flirt and embarrasses her regularly. But the book doesn't, like, undermine her at all. And in fact, she goes on to be an asset because Chase's initial intention is to inform DeGrasse that Pickering has this plan to swap out the paintings. So he needs to get to DeGrasse and tell him in person, right? Because he's an insurance man. He's a company man. He's going to do things by the book. Also justified, also clever. And this wife, because of his kindness, and the book is also really kind to her and doesn't make her seem like a silly nag or anything. She's like, all right, I'll introduce you to DeGrasse. And that introduction forces him. He gets kicked out of the party, right? That leaves Delia alone at the party to confront Pickering in a subtle way and get him. She tells him, I'm the one who actually does the forgeries and gets him to like bring her on board with the plan. Like all of these moves 
work so well. There is a scene where I think we go into maybe too much depth about how historical art forgeries work. This is a Victorian era novel, but it, it was fascinating to me, so I didn't mind reading it. And it really only takes up two pages. I didn't mind it either because it was immersive. And I think one of the things about understanding this particular part of the series of crimes, like I was just so relieved that it wasn't another dead girl. And like while her dad's death and murder were sad, like the art forgery itself and like how this underworld works and like how this happens and how curators are fooled. Like it was fascinating to read about and like that people made tons of money and that like it's still happening like this happened at Sotheby's not like more than nine months ago where one of their paintings up for auction was actually a very good forgery and so I mean I too I really loved that I thought the the depth of detail in terms of this overarching crime and then the fact that there's like a series of interstitial crimes that are happening was super smart yeah no girls were murdered in the making of this crime story. No one was raped. Right. So nice. Yeah. And then there is a lot like this book relies a lot on like 1970s ideas of romance structure, but there's so much that subverts it. Like the fact that these characters, our hero and our heroine are both working class. It's never revealed that either of them are secretly a duke or duchess. And at the end of the novel, it doesn't conclude with a wedding. It just concludes with them like solving their case. They are engaged, right? They have told each other that they're in love with one another. But there isn't like a wedding or a baby or pregnancy even. Like she actually was just seasick, which is really refreshing. And I and I think we give a lot of credit to people for like recently like inventing the working class historical. But this kind of like small like male order pulp romance is demonstrating that authors actually weren't so beholden, I think, as we think to trope. I mean, some of them weren't. The fact that we've read quite a few early 90s romance novels, and like I think this is, if not the first time, one of the first times that both our main characters are working class. And that I think you're right to say that like we didn't just invent it, just like, you know, we haven't just invented like sexual agency. Um, and I think one of the things that is really special about this text is that money is seen for exactly what it is. It's like a tool that can get you things, but it's not like an end in and of itself. Right. The comment about money, it's like they understand it as a tool and like he likes his job. It's like fulfilling for him yeah. and she likes her job and it's fulfilling for her and there's like not this whole thing and even even in the opening when she gets this like special little windfall because these like British students whatever like wanted these silhouettes and she like gets a roast beef and a nice bottle of wine she's like hey dad let's celebrate you know yeah even in the fact that they only have three chairs in front of the fireplace the fact that they are working class is ancillary to how their characters are functioning and I think that's what was so relevatory to me it's never misery porn right Delia is frustrated by her father's alcoholism, but she's also adaptive to it. And, you know, they are comfortable, right? For the most part. Yeah, their needs are met. There's never like a moment where they're like going to uh, try and manipulate the situation genuinely to get more money, right? Yeah. There's also the ending is so great where after this huge tussle, the Comte de Grasse is like, her forgeries have been placed in the original frames and the originals are just canvases lying off to the side. And he is convinced the Comte de Grasse that hers are the real paintings and he slashes the real ones with a knife. 
Yep. Despite her protestations. And, you know, she can't really go into detail as to how she knows because she can't let people know that she's a forger. There's not even an idolization of the wealthy upper class. Nope. Like, they don't do really anything admirable. And the way class functions in this novel, this historical novel especially, is so refreshing. Yes. But I wonder if it's not because this author was really like, I'm writing an action adventure with sex scenes in it. And I wonder if this novel wouldn't have been better if it wasn't like a slow burn. Like if they hadn't just been like partners who flirted with each other a bunch. And then maybe the first sex scene is like two thirds of the way through if it had to be in there at all. Maybe just a big smooch at the end would have been satisfying. Yeah, like The Mummy. I don't know. I think you're right to say that like the part that was least believable to me was their romance. Although the times that their romance felt most believable was when they were very antagonistic with each other and like yelling at each other. And she's like trying to get a rise out of him because, you know, he's always talking about his duty to stop pickering, both for his company, but also because he feels responsible for her. And like, he never says that he loves her and that's the thing that she wants to hear so like he's always retreating into like these excuses about why he's doing the things that he's doing and she sees that as like well our association will end I have to protect myself from heartbreak so like I'm just gonna get under his skin as much as possible and he's always like what the fuck is she doing like she's gonna kill herself and how am I gonna live if I have to live like without her but they never talk to each other and so like that like angst of like if you just used your words you dummies you would know that you both love each other and like that's when the romance really sang yeah but there were other times where I was just like you guys make really good partners there's like a real Watson and Sherlock dynamic happening he's definitely the Watson yeah she's very much a loose cannon yeah and I agree I think can we get to sexiest part let's do that So for me in general, the sexiest part was their bantering back and forth. Like you said, even when they're antagonistic, it's very good. And this book, the internal dialogue is very like pat romancy stuff. Let me give you an example of what I mean when I say that. She says stuff in her sex scenes. Chase's kiss quite literally took Delia's breath away, leaving her breathless and dizzy and just a little bit lost. When she first felt the knowing probe of his tongue, she could only wonder what it was he was seeking. Like, that kind of internal stuff, it's pretty lame. Super lame. But the actual flirtatious dialogue is so tantalizing. And I will provide you with an example here on page 51. No more, thank you, she told him. I'm afraid I've already become a bit tipsy. Drinking at lunch, très franche. He considered her slightly flushed cheeks and grin. Then perhaps there is a treasure hidden at the end of that rainbow after all, he told her. She had a little rainbow in her crystal. Am I to construe that remark as a preamble to an assault on my virtue, Mr. Sutton? He seemed as surprised by her question as she was, but far less put off. Chivalry dictates I respond in the negative, Delia, he replied softly. He leaned forward and took her hand in his, then lifted it, holding it near to his lips. But at this moment, I'm afraid honesty forces me to admit that I find it terribly difficult to be chivalrous. He pressed his lips against her open palm. Like, if that had continued this kind of flirty will they, won't they, I think that's what I was missing, is a will they, won't they. Because they did on page, like, 90. (laughs) Oh, shit. 
What? You said at the beginning of this episode that Susan Sackett is famous for being involved in Star Trek. And I was like, especially that scene that you're reading feels very, if you're familiar with the next generation, it feels very much like Commander Riker, where, you know, he's constantly leaning over women and aliens and constantly (laughs) importuning them with sexual innuendo. And he's like always game for that. And that's what it sounded very much like. And so I, I just looked her up and I was like, I wonder if she wrote for TNG. And of course she did. Yeah. But also it turns out that she also wrote my very favorite Star Trek movie. So I was just like, oh, fuck, this is so good. Yeah. And that's the thing. Like I did also look into, I was like, this seems like a little a bit of that TNG sexual tension. You know, that was like so fun. Totally. TNG. But I should probably start watching that again. I used to watch it when it was on TV. It's so good. I actually just restarted watching Voyager. It has that really comforting, warm, soft, almost sepia lighting that feels like you're in a den. (laughs) Yeah, it does. It feels like you're in the den of the bridge with a bunch of very competent people who are like genuinely up for like adventure and like want things to work out and like, you know, living in a post-scarcity society where they've solved all the problems of capitalism and racism. It's great. There's something about like how comforting the... Enterprise is in TNG. Yeah. That like really lets you know there's going to be a happily ever after at the end of every episode. Absolutely. Nothing can go that wrong under this Afghan blanket. Right. And not only is there going to be a happily ever after, but we're all going to grow. We're going to learn something. And I think like, you know, I don't love that her sexual naivety is exchanged for like carnal knowledge in the way that it is. Right. And that like Chase is the trellis, as you beautifully described earlier, that she has to climb to get to that. It's like he's jizzing maturity into her. Yeah, it's just like, I'm not... Like, that's the only character growth, but you don't even see it in the sex scene. It's just like, <laughs> at the end, she's like, I guess I should. Yeah, I'm like, just it's, like, it's kind of a drag. Okay. And I also think that, like, that's a real failure of how awesome this book really was, especially at the beginning with that sex scene that you just opened with that witty repartee. So, like, my sexiest part is also obviously their banter, but I was so surprised and so touched by this very first sex scene and her internality around it where she's invented this narrative that she's going to have sex with Pickering so that he doesn't bother her dad without knowing anything about him and so she takes this in choice she's like well Chase is very attractive and I've had this lovely afternoon and like why don't I just get this over with and have sex with a beautiful man and like you know wash my hands of it and then go do this odious thing and you know I really liked the contrivance of it I know it was a gimmick But I think it was a gimmick that worked really well. And it told me a lot about Delia really, really quickly. And I liked that. I also liked that Chase didn't want to lie to her. Their like cuddling was very cute. That like the sex is euphemistic, but like their cuddling was incredibly visual. (laughs) Like there's like this scene where she wraps herself in the duvet and like all of it felt like a very like quiet, rainy Paris afternoon. Like you can like smell the streets as like the rain is coming up. And I found that very sexy. You know, that kind of gets me to one of my weirdest parts, which is where these contrivances, you know, I almost feel like it would have been enough to be like, it's a beautiful sunny day in Paris. She's had a wonderful ride through a park and she's had a lunch with a couple glasses of wine. I think we would all be willing to go up to a hotel room at that point, right? 
Yeah. Like, I don't know if it needed to be like this, like sexual, got to get this out of the way before I go and seduce Pickering. And I think it's enough also to be like, she's had sex with Chase and she feels this attachment to him. Like it would have been enough if she had just not been interested in having sex with Pickering at that point. But instead the book decides to become pretty homophobic. Yep. So first of all, Pickering is a truly great villain. You can see the real bread and butter of this author's talents in the action adventure aspects, like a really good villain, which I think we rarely see in romance, a really well curated cast of characters, right? There's not any fat on the character list that needs to be cut. Even like the guards of the painting all have a role to play besides just being the guards, which is wonderful and clever and enjoyable. And so the fact that Chase explains to her that Pickering wouldn't have had sex with her because he pays young boys for sex was like, ugh. It it was like, why does it have to be that? Like, why was that worth mentioning? It literally never comes up again. Like, his homosexuality is never mentioned again. Well, it comes up at the very end with Comte de Grasse, but it doesn't get any less homophobic. Right, right. And also, like, Comte de Grasse, another character who sucks. Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. And it's once again not even present it it's like sneeringly provided sneering is exactly right and I found that to be a great distraction and does it explain why Comte de Grasse no not really like Comte de Grasse is a very proud man like I don't think he would have believed that anyone he trusted as a house guest who was of his class would betray him so I don't think it was necessary to add this element especially with the tone that it did no I totally agree like there were any number of ways like so the thing that's revealed at the very end is like we know from the scene at the ball that Pickering is like snuggled up to Comte de Grasse. He's a very special friend. And the woman who is talking to Chase, whose husband is dancing with Delia, says that like there's something about Pickering that like really sets my teeth on edge. I just I don't like anything about him. I, he hasn't done anything to me. I don't know why I feel that way. And, you know, we as readers already have a reason not to like him. He's already murdered Delia's dad at this point. So whatever. But then at the very end, like we have that scene with Pickering and the con at the ball. And then at the very end, the comp shows up and he's like Pickering what's happening and Pickering is like lying to him and he's like, they're going to kill me and like blah, blah, blah. And then he sees Pickering's like small stiletto and he says that like that was on my dressing table. I know that it's yours. And so like into that space, we understand that there's been like an intimate relationship. And then like the Kant is so heartbroken that he's been lied to and like he's seen as a fool. And it's like it wasn't necessary. Like he was already silly. He was silly for not being able to understand like the forgery versus the real. Like we didn't have to make him sadder in this instance and we didn't have to make this worse like the homophobia was like very odious and it's also you know on a structural basis like flopping something like that yeah is going to demonstrate how much a flop all of the other flops were which once again I believe that like this author wrote an action adventure and then was like okay I'm getting this published by zebra lovegram so where can I fit in sex scenes it's not that the sex scenes are poorly written it's just they don't they're not satisfying and they don't really make sense in the story yeah and we could have done better with a will they won't they yep and we definitely could have done better without the homophobia 
Yeah. What was your weirdest part? The homophobia. Like, absolutely. And the way that it's revealed is, like, really weird because, like, she has invented this narrative where she's going to seduce him, which is the entire contrivance of her sleeping with Chase for the first time. And then, like, Chase explains it to her, but also her dad does. And then it's revealed that, like, Pickering and Cotter were potentially in an abusive sexual relationship. And, like, there's this weird thing that Pickering says about, like, oh, you got old and gross and, like, I'm not attracted to you anymore you stupid fuck and then like Cotter's like you got old too except he's like still like vital and all the more dangerous and he's got like this very small mustache and I was like what are we doing here like why are we doing it this way he's already a murderer yeah there's like enough to dislike he doesn't need to anyways I've got another weird part which is the physical altercation between Chase and her friends in the park oh that's a good one and like what we're supposed to make of that like I understand Pierre and Claude being the fighters, right? Because this book kind of trade, like the coin of the realm of this book is an American commenting on British and French foreign relations, right? Yeah. So the French people are all like passionate, right? And Pierre is especially young. And so he's going to react with violence, but he only does so when he's trying to protect our heroine Delia from this perceived threat. And like Chase definitely looks like a threat. He grabs her shoulder. He grabs her wrist in an attempt to get her to listen to him. He reacts poorly. And his violence is completely unjustified compared, I think, to her friends. And he absolutely wails on them. And Delia runs to her friend's side and wants to take care of them and doesn't want any more fighting. But like, what am I supposed to think about Chase after that? Am I supposed to think like cool bitchin (laughs) like there's not even a slight framing of it as if he's like doing something in Delia's defense no that scene felt very 1993 to me because like he wails on Pierre and then Claude and all the other dude artists show up and then they like pin Chase's arms behind him and then Pierre gets like three or four good shots in and then they take him by the river and they basically threaten to throw him in and then like get him one more time and then like he crawls up the bank he's wet muddy, dirty, and bloody. And then he shows back up where she is with the guys who have just wailed on him. And he's like, we can go again. And it's like, oh, so now I understand that like you really want to talk to her. I was like, okay. Yeah, exactly. It's like, I understand like this feels very 1993, but I also feel like whenever we have a violent hero in romance that really believes in romance, the justification is always clearly directed towards this romantic relationship, right? Which isn't the case here. So I don't know how much this book actually buys into itself as a romance yeah I mean I don't know like we're talking about a person who wrote Star Trek for the voyage home so what, what is the relevance there there's like a will they won't they but mostly it's just about whales it's just the best Star Trek well there's not a will they won't they in this one no like they've already have but the parts where this feels like the most romantic the most sizzling are the moments where it's like their antagonism comes out So why do you think we didn't get a whole novel? Because it it does, like knowing the writer's other works, it would make sense. And knowing what's good in this book, it would make sense to take the will they won't they road. So why wasn't it taken? I don't know. You know, like without talking to Susan Sackett, like I'm loathe to like ascribe intentionality to an author I've never met. I think probably part of it is like she's publishing for Zebra. So she needs titillating sex scenes. I think in this like specific like, 
category adjacent romance, I think we can kind of use some context clues <laughs> as to why there wasn't a will they won't they because we understand like when I see th- this little hologram of a guy licking a lady's neck in the upper right corner, I have certain expectations, right? And an author would have certain expectations to meet regardless of whether or not the story necessarily lent itself there. Sure, but do you have chapter two expectations? Like I was completely floored by the first sex scene. And I think like that feels like such a choice that like the publishing itself wouldn't have determined like what would have been the difference of having the sex scene like directly after the funeral. And by the way, there was not a sex scene right after her dad's funeral. And I was deeply disappointed. That's my weirdest part. This is a very steamy publishing line. And, you know, I think if a chapters two sex scene was going to happen anywhere in the early 90s, it was going to happen in a zebra. Yep. But I also think it kind of shows like having the sex scene that early could be really interesting, but instead it kind of flops. Which demonstrates that the craft around sex scene and the craft around romance itself, I think, is kind of lacking in this novel. Because the flirtation is so successful, because the action adventure is so successful, because the character craft is so successful, you have to assume that this was just like an unhoned blade, the sex scenes in this book. And then if it's unhoned, why would you include them? Well, because you're getting published by Zebra is a good a reason as any. And I think this book, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about Angie and the Ghostbuster, which was also this really surprising area. And I'm thinking about the romance novels that really adhered to those tropes tightly and the expectations tightly. Those were not category romances. And so I wonder if category romance allows more space for subversion than we've given it credit for. Yeah, I think that's probably true. I would be willing to test that theory. (laughs) All right. Any final thoughts about Reckless by Susan Sackett? Woe or a no? You know, I've thought a lot about this. And I think like the hard part for me is like, you're right. The romance itself kind of feels like a wet fish, but it's such a fun read. Like I read it in a total sitting. I would 100% recommend this to people who tell me that they like The Mummy, which won the romance bracket this year. Thank God. How many times have you mentioned The Mummy this episode? Not enough. I can do it more. I think we're up to like seven. It it could be more. If anybody's just watched Miss Scarlet and the Duke, this feels very much like that. It feels cinematic. It pops when it pops. And so like, it's hard for me not to say that it's a woe, although this is a show about romance novels so that leaves me in a weird space and I'm gonna call it a woe I had fun I feel bad calling it a woe because it's so hard to find (laughs) (laughs) the fact that we each have a copy is pretty remarkable I mean become a patreon subscriber and you can have my copy I'll send it back out into the world oh yeah we do have that patreon level Oh, I'm not sure if we do anymore, actually. I think we made it very equal. But there's a lot of good stuff in here. The romance isn't good. And homophobia isn't good. Like, if I wanted an action adventure, there are better action adventures out there. I think it's a no for me. Fair. Super fair. All right. Any final thoughts now? Gonna watch some Star Trek. Definitely. All right. With that, loosen your stays. But never your principles. Mwah. Whoa, golly gee. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Womance. Womance is hosted by Isabel. That's me. And Morgan, that's me. Production is by Nick Gravelin. Our webmistress is the incomparable Jane Bonzac. And our illustration and logo were created by Mary Reichman. 
they're the best. If you'd like to follow, creep, or connect with us on our social media platforms, you can find us at mans underscore woe on Twitter, womance on Instagram, or email at womansmail at gmail.com. You can also hang out on our amazing website at womancepodcast.com. You can support us by using our code to visit our sponsors or go to our Patreon where we are Womance. Womance is officially part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Discover more podcasts just like our own centering on romance and reading at frolic.media slash podcast. Until next week. Mwah.